Welcome back, welcome back. If you are in year nine, you're out this morning, so head to the back and uh, uh, you will find your youth leaders somewhere around who can point you in the right direction. If you're in year seven and eight, you've got me this morning. So, and if you're above year nine, you've got me as well. Um, brilliant. Ah, oh, good, good stuff. We all ready? Good stuff. So, we are, as Natalie said, we're continuing our trending series. I think um, it's gone really well so far, but been incredibly challenging. We've looked at the subjects of uh, same-sex attraction and marriage. Um, Last week, Andrew looked at euthanasia and assisted dying. And as Natalie said this morning, we're going to be looking at the beginning of life and abortion. Um, It's an incredibly difficult subject and I know that it provokes huge emotion and my aim for this morning is that I will communicate with both clarity and compassion. This isn't about throwing the first stone of judgment. Do you remember John chapter 8 where the woman is caught in adultery and she's brought before Jesus and although Jesus um, does confront her sin He doesn't give any room for judgmental attitudes. But I want to look at this subject from a Christian and biblical perspective. This is also about God's plan for human flourishing. Do you remember, Andrew's mentioned that a couple of times, that some of these subjects that we're looking at can be very challenging and very difficult, but these aren't the rules of a killjoy God. This is about how God has designed life to work for its best. So that even in tragic and difficult circumstances, we can still make the right decisions and set a platform for flourishing in our lives. Now, I'm no doctor. I'm not trained as a nurse. And I know there are men and women here who are trained in healthcare as nurses, doctors, who would be much more qualified than me to talk from this from a medical perspective. But as I've said, I want to provide a biblical framework that we can operate within and so that we can make our decisions. So we're going to look at this under four headings. We're going to look at it under context. So I'm going to check the context that we live in, our society. I'm going to look at what the Bible speaks, what the Bible says on this subject. I'm going to give you a very brief biology lesson. You okay for that? Some of you probably haven't been in a biology lesson for quite a few years. Well, I'll just give you a little bit of a refresher. Hopefully I can do that effectively. Um, And then lastly, we're going to look at how do we respond to this. Depending on the circumstances we find ourselves in or as a church together, what is an appropriate response for us? So I'm going to pray. You up for praying with me? Excellent. Why don't you you just spend a few moments praying right now? Pray for an open heart, um, an uncluttered mind for yourself. Pray that I do a good job. Why don't we raise our voices and pray, and then I'll pray at the end. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true. I pray that this morning you would give us um, understanding 
into what your word says on this very challenging subject. I pray, Lord God, you'd give us eyes to see, give us minds to understand, give us hearts to feel compassion and be impacted and love those around us, whatever their background, whatever their circumstances, whatever they've been through, whatever they've done. Lord, I ask you, give us big, compassionate hearts. Lord, I pray, enable me, Holy Spirit, to speak. I ask you well. I pray this will be a blessed time together. I pray that this will be a time of freedom. I pray this will be a time of redemption. I pray this will be a time when guilt is being lifted. I pray this will be a time when we feel the love of community and family. I pray it will be a time when loneliness is dispelled. I pray it be when the enemy's lies are cast out. Come and have your way, we pray. Amen. Let me pick up context then. Let me set the context for you. 50 years ago, um, in just the October just gone, the Abortion Act was passed. October 1967. Before the Act came in, one estimate suggests that 80,000 backstreet abortions took place every year, which led to 50 women losing their lives. So some women had um, abortions in incredibly difficult um, circumstances, uh, driven by desperation for it. Last year in the UK, it is estimated that 190,000 abortions took place, and that one in three women will have had an abortion by the end of their lifetime. In many ways, abortion is seen in our society as an everyday part of healthcare. Only 3% of the UK population say that abortion is never acceptable. So that means that 97% of the population say that, at least in some circumstances, abortion is acceptable. And many of the UK population would say that in maybe many circumstances, it is acceptable. 90% of Down syndrome fetuses are now aborted following screening. When the Act was passed 50 years ago, the main argument was based around compassion. There are 80,000 women having backstreet abortions in incredibly difficult environments, 50 women a year losing their lives. How can this be the case? That was the argument. It was a compassion argument. As time moved on, it moved from compassion, although still there, to a right. This is, this is my body, and I have the right to decide what takes place in my body, what happens within my body. It moved on to a right. More recently, I believe the argument is moving on again, and it's moving on to a duty. That if you are a good citizen, it's right in some circumstances to have an abortion, Maybe it's to save money for the national health because the baby will be unhealthy or because you're unable to look after it. Um, maybe that is the appropriate, the dutiful thing to do. Specifically, there are many reasons why someone may have an abortion. It might be the wrong stage of life for them. They may have been raped. 
They may already have more children than they can look after or financially provide for. They may be part of a relationship that they thought was loving and has just split up and they can't think how they will now look after a little one. Maybe they've had pressure from spouse or parents or as I've already just touched on, maybe the baby isn't healthy and they just don't, can't get their minds around how can they look after a baby in that situation or a child in that situation. The Telegraph reported a survey from earlier this year and it said this, out of 667 American women questioned by researchers over three years, only 5% felt negative emotions of anger, regret, guilt or sadness following an abortion. However, Watching a BBC Two documentary recently, and some of you may have watched it, it was sort of marking the 50th anniversary of the abortion um, act coming in. It was a documentary where nine women who had had an abortion, well actually no, it was eight women and one man who'd been affected by abortion, sat around and just discussed different things in connection with it. Here are some of the phrases, well here are the phrases that five of the women said. And the reason I'm showing this is I want, I want to open a window. We, we will look at what is right and what is wrong, but I want to open a window on how abortion affects people. I want us to walk maybe just a few metres in someone else's shoes and just to try and understand, allow compassion to grow inside. One lady said she was haunted by her abortion. Someone else said they tried very hard not to think about the abortion that took place 50 years ago. It's like a bit of their mind, bit of their life. They just didn't want to open the door on. Someone else said it had taken years to recover. And the last one, which I think in many ways is the saddest, abortions I've had defined everything about my life. Sometimes... Churches can be very quick to say what is right and what is wrong. And there is a place for that. But we also need to think about what people are going through when they're making these extremely difficult decisions. So what does the Bible say? What does the Bible have to say about this? It says in Genesis 1 verse 27, So God created man in his own image... In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right at the beginning, the first chapter of Genesis, just 27 verses in, men and women, people are made and given value by God. We as people, every single one of us here in this room, are different from all other creatures on the face of the earth because we've been made in God's image. At the zenith of God's creative activity, God made man, God made woman in his image, in his likeness. And when God says he's made us in his image, it means we are like God in several ways. We have an ability to reason, morality, language, 
a capacity that we have for relationships governed by love and commitment, creativity. These are some of the things that reflect the God-likeness that we carry around in our lives. Whether you are a Christian here today or not, you are created in, with God-likeness. The orthodox Christian position, that means the Christian position that most of the church has held for centuries and centuries and centuries, is that we are all unique and special in the eyes of God because we're made in his image. Each of us, and I know even as I say it, some of you will be challenged by that. this, each of us is a masterpiece of God's creation. Flawed, imperfect, damaged, but a masterpiece just the same. It's like this wonderful um, painting by Monet or someone like that. And why is it valuable? Well, he was a a good painter, yes, but it's valuable because he painted it. I am valuable as I stand here today, not because of what I can achieve or because of what I can do, but purely, totally and utterly, I have been created in the image of God. And you may look at me and go, wow. (laughs) Not necessarily a good wow. But that is actually true for every single one of us here today. You're created in the image of God, and because of that, you have value. So no human being needs to earn the right to be treated with respect and dignity, because our dignity is intrinsic. It's it's in us. It lies in how we were made, how God created us, how he remembers us, how he he calls us to himself. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins. The God of all the universe, the God enthroned. In the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. The robe filled the temple, the glory of God was there, the angels were there. He sent his son to die for me. Men and women, we are valuable in the sight of God. We are not just one step up the evolutionary ladder. That is a lie. It is not true. And that affects how we treat one another. Now you may say, yeah, I get that and I can look around here and I can say, yes, I can see that every person here has intrinsic value. But when does life start? When is it that we become human beings? When is it that that happens? Let me read, or let us read together from Psalm 139, verses 13 through to 16. For you formed my inward parts. This is David speaking of God. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret, in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them." God was involved in your beginnings, in your creation. It is both a personal and intentional work of God. God himself is the architect and builder of your life. The psalmist doesn't say that you had a mysterious beginning, that you were a blob of matter, and then at some point in the future, you became a person. He says, David says, that was me in the womb. That was me, that was David in the womb. 
John Piper says this, the life of the unborn is the knitting of God. And what he is knitting is a human being in his own image, unlike any other creature in the whole universe. God is the only one who can create personhood. Verse 14, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Just as an aside, does your soul know that you're fearfully and wonderfully made? I am. You know, sometimes I just got to remind myself of that. Because I don't always feel fearfully and wonderfully made, but the Bible says it's true. That's how God made us. My soul knows it very well. This statement is true of every person. It isn't dependent on intelligence, strength, achievement or wealth. Even fallen, rebellious humanity is fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving creator, God. Then he goes to talk not just about the beginnings of his life, but life itself. He says in verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. It's interesting to note that the writer speaks of himself in the womb in the same way that he speaks of himself outside the womb. There's continuity. Can you see that's continuity in his language and in his thought process? In the womb, David was in relationship with God. John Stott says this, The fetus is neither a growth in the mother's body, nor even a potential human being, but already a human life who, though not yet mature, has the potentiality of growing into the fullness of individual humanity he or she already possesses. But we find this not just in the Old Testament, we find it in the New Testament as well. If you've got your Bibles, um, turn to Luke chapter 1. If you haven't, don't worry, the words will come up behind me. But in Luke chapter 1, we see a scene from everyday life. We find two pregnant women meeting and talking. We see Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we also see Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Not enough room on the lectern for a big Bible and an iPad. But anyway, let's just read it. So it's Luke chapter 1, verse 41 through to 44. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she explained with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? That the mother of my Lord shall come to me. For behold, when the sound of your great greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. When Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, the baby leaps in her womb. In this writing, we see two visible actors and two invisible actors in this scene. We see Mary and Elizabeth who are speaking and interacting as persons. But we also see Jesus only just conceived by the Holy Spirit, either an embryo or a fetus. But we also see John the Baptist, who is nearly at term, responding to what is going on on the outside of the womb. It is quite incredible. There are actually four actors in this scene, not just the two. And if you follow Luke's logic through in writing this, we find the same Greek word for the unborn John mentioned here, which is brephos, As the newborn Jesus in Luke 2 verse 12, 
as the children who were brought to Jesus in Luke 18 verse 15. This word brephos is used for the unborn in the womb, a newborn, Jesus after he's born, and also for the children when they're brought to Jesus. The, the Bible, the Greek, doesn't separate and think something different is happening in the womb to outside of it. There's again continuity of language, the same word for fetus, baby, and child. Now within society, we look to split these things up. Although the Bible doesn't use the word abortion, it is not silent on the subject. We see that life is precious, not because of strength, the capacity to reason, ability, or because of what someone can contribute, but a person is intrinsically valuable, made in the image of God. We also see that personhood is not restricted to babies outside of the womb, but babies in the womb are also seen as persons who are in relationship with God and community around them. The baby in the womb cannot function as an adult can. They're not as mature, although all the potential is there. But that doesn't make them less of a person, less valuable, or more disposable. So we've looked at context, we've looked at Bible. What does biology say? So you ready for a biology lesson? Yeah? Okay. So at fertilisation, the sperm penetrates the egg and the nuclear material fuses. At the point of fertilisation, I mean, just grab this. The child's sex, shape, sorry, size and shape, colour of skin, hair and eyes, temperament and intelligence are already determined. These aren't things that are added in later. They all go in at fertilisation. That single fertilised cell is formed 45 generations of cell division later, 41 of them in the womb, you have a fully grown adult with 30 million million cells. Started as one. Wow. The wonder of what God does. At five to seven days after fertilisation, the embryo attaches to the lining of the womb. Implantation connections begin and the mother and the embryo between the mother and the embryo, will begin to form, including the umbilical cord. It's the size of a poppy seed. The brain, spinal cord, heart, and gastrointestinal tract begin to form. They're not developed, but they begin to form at seven days. At nine weeks, ultrasound gives us a stunning window on the womb. And it shows the unborn sucking their thumb, recoiling, if sort of pricked. Don't quite know how they do that, but in a sense, I guess a needle or something will make the baby recoil. Responding to sound, all the organs are present, the brain is functioning, the heart is pumping, the liver is making blood cells, the kidneys are cleaning fluids, there's a fingerprint. Not everything fully developed, but happening. Mum is aware of baby. Is there a difference between a fetus, a baby, at nine weeks in the womb and a month, out, a month old outside of the womb, other than size and development? Viability occurs at about 24 weeks, although with medical advances, I think, I think that, that changes a little bit. However, the baby isn't well developed at that point. 
It's not as big as a baby if born, um, sorry, at full term, and it will need medical help to survive. Some people maybe would say that, well, viability is when the fetus becomes a baby. But I'm not certain that living on its own or viability is a good criteria for human personhood. It depends on medicine and technology, which is ever-moving. In different settings, in different hospitals, that means that when someone becomes a person is different, dependent on viability. And in different nations, again, that would be different depending on the quality of the healthcare. And the reality is we use respirators and dialysis to keep people alive because they are persons. At around 40 weeks, the baby appears. That seems to be how it happened for me anyway, with Chloe. I think Chloe would quite describe it as just appearing, but anyway. Baby in the womb just prior to birth is in no way different to one just after birth. They're both reliant on the mother, though maybe in different ways. It's interesting to note that Freddie, when Freddie was born my youngest, a friend of ours had a baby with the same due date, but was born five weeks premature. Developmentally, they were at the same place, one inside the womb, one outside of the womb. It was location that was different. Biology, as well as the Bible, is also speaking. When you think about just some of the things I've described, and I've rattled through them, just the developmental stages in the womb, or maybe go on the internet and type in a Google search along the lines of maybe baby in the womb, images and just see some photos, you will be amazed at what you see, a picture of what God is knitting together in the womb, what is developing there. It's compelling. It's not just a growth, it's not just a group of cells, they are not subhuman, less than human. It's a person, not yet developed, but everything in place that just needs time and sustenance to grow. Now, I'm, I'm labouring this because within society as a whole, there is a desire to dehumanise babies in the womb, to make them subhuman, less than human. And whenever you do that to a segment of society, it provides then the opportunity to treat that segment of society in a less than human way. If they are not human, they do not need to be treated with the dignity and respect that person should be treated with. So we've seen context We've heard what the Bible's had to say. We've briefly heard about the biology. I'm sure your biology teacher did a much better job than me. But what is our response to this? Well, a baby in the womb is a person that should be protected. And I believe the Bible is quite clear on shouldn't be aborted. But are there any exceptions? 
What about in the case of rape? What about in the case where maybe the baby has Downs or some other disability? Are, are there reasons, mitigating circumstances that change the position? If, we, if I pick up rape as an example to start with and I, I do so, I want to do so, so sensitively and tenderly because I cannot begin to imagine the pain and trauma that someone would go through who is raped and I don't want to sound or come across in any way as um, unthinking or uncaring. But in all of that pain... I come back and I ask the question, if I can, with love. What is the baby in her womb? And in spite of circumstance of how the baby arrived to be there, in spite of that, the baby is a person. Intrinsically valuable. And although this woman has been through a horrendous act, it's wrong. To totally wrong. I do not believe that that creates a set of circumstances where it is right to end the life of the baby in her womb. That isn't an easy answer. It's something that for the individual involved or individuals, they're going to have to really work through. Incredibly painful. Could we just put the tweet up, Laura? Steve Patton tweeted this a little while ago. I think he was a pastor, but that doesn't really matter. 12-year-old girl was raped and got pregnant. Everyone would understand if she had an abortion. She didn't. It was a boy. And his name was Steve Patton. Church, we need so much compassion and love for all those involved when making these sorts of decisions. It is so hard. There really isn't place for judgment. There isn't. What about with disability? Again, I cannot begin to imagine what parents go through. But let me ask the question again, what is the baby in the womb? It's a person. Intrinsically valuable. Not based on their abilities. Their right to life is not based on what they will contribute, although actually... Everyone has the ability to enrich others' lives. And as Christians, should we not be the ones providing protection for the weakest and most vulnerable? Evolution says survival of the fittest. We're created in the image of God. Laura, could you just play this video for me, please?
It's just a three-minute video. I found it profoundly moving. You may have seen it. That knows more about life with Down syndrome than, than, than I do. I am a man with Down syndrome, and my life is worth living. Some people say prenatal screens will identify Down syndrome in the womb, and those pregnancies will just be terminated. It's hard for me to sit here and say those words. The people pushing this particular final solution are saying that, that people like me should not exist. That view is deeply prejudiced by an, by an outdated idea of life with, with of life with Down syndrome. Seriously, I have a great life. I have lectured at universities and spoken to thousands of young people about the value of inclusion. I have been to the White House twice and I didn't have to jump the fence either time. <laughs> Seriously, I don't feel I should have to justify my existence. On a deeply personal note, I cannot tell you how much it means to me that my extra chromosome might lead to the answer to, to Alzheimer's. It's likely that this thief will one day steal my memories my very life from me. This is very hard for me to say, but it has already begun to steal my mom from me. Please think about all those people you love, the way I love my mom. Help us make this difference. Fund this research. Let's make our goal to be Alzheimer's free, not Down syndrome free. Thank you. Powerful, isn't it? So how so how do we respond? Well, the first thing. I think we should wonder at creation. Wonder at how God has made us. Two people come together and a third, or even a fourth, can come from that. The wonder of what goes on in the womb. I would um, encourage you, let it be a cause to worship and glorify Jesus. I think secondly, as a church, we need to provide options we need to provide practical help within the church. We need grandparents in the church to support single parent families and those that maybe are struggling with children. We need to create an environment and a broader family, not just lots of nuclear families, but broader family and community together where people know that they're going to find love and support and help and care. 
Do you understand? We need some more grandparents. So for some of you, maybe you've not been grandparents with natural children, but you can be grandparents to children that aren't naturally yours, but you can have an input into their lives. Maybe for others of you, you should be looking into fostering or adoption. The reality is when a woman is pregnant, she has three choices. She can have the baby and keep the baby. She can have an abortion. Or if she cannot cope with it, she can put it up for adoption. We need more families, more people as foster families and adoptive families as well. Home for Good is an excellent charity for you to look at if you want to find out more about that. We also in the church have um, a ministry called Reflect that is an outstanding ministry. It has been running for many, many years. It's headed up by Sheila Rosewell and Sue Clark. I notice Sue, you're here this morning. They provide pregnancy crisis support. So if you are here today and you are pregnant and wondering, what on earth do I do? They can just give you a safe place to talk and to share how you're feeling. It's a safe environment. But they also provide post-abortion counselling. And I know numbers of women within the church who have been, and outside the church who have been through this, and have been so blessed and strengthened through the care, the prayer, the support that they have found there. At the back over in that far corner, um, near, near um, just at the back there, you'll see a table with a bouquet of flowers on. It looks really, really good. Jackie Rendell will be there. I would encourage you, just go over and find out more about what they do. Or if you just want to pick a card up. I think if you are processing some of these big, big things, Reflect is the place for you to go to find help. Our ministry team is good and they are good, good people. But I would actually point you towards Reflect, where there are people there who have been trained and can really help and support you in an effective manner. So there are contact cards at the back for that. Church, compassion. It's good that I've been able to inform and provide information and do that, but my heart actually would be that what goes along with that is that you have an overwhelming sense of compassion for both the unborn baby but also the mother as well. I want us to be a church where if a single lady gets pregnant, she knows that she's going to be loved and supported and cared for here in keeping the baby and not feel that she either has to run away and leave the church or go for an abortion because that is an easier thing. Church has not generally done well in showing compassion. What they've often communicated is judgment. Is abortion sin? Yes, it is. It shouldn't happen. But we have all sinned in multiple horrendous ways. We all have. And abortion is not the unforgivable sin. John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Yes, he said, leave your life of sin behind. But he went after those guys who showed judgment. That's not acceptable. How they treated her was not acceptable. That was not right. And King's Church, 
We need to be a church that leads on compassion and truth. We may not agree with everything that happens in society, but we lead on compassion anyway. And lastly, just as I close, and if I can invite the band back up, please. You know, grace and mercy are available here today. There isn't a better place for you to be in Hastings than here today, a place of grace and mercy. Not because I'm extending it or because King's Church extends it, but because Jesus Christ died for our sins that we might be forgiven. As I've said, I want to say it again, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. You can be forgiven and cleansed from it. You know that God is a God of second chances. But that actually isn't quite true. He's also the God of third and fourth and fifth and sixth chances. And there isn't anything you can do that can put yourself out of the orbit of God's love for you. It says in Isaiah 1 verse 18, and I felt prophetically this was right for now. This is, I want you to imagine, actually, can we just stand? Why don't we just close our eyes? And to be honest, we can all, we can all respond to this. Maybe it would be good for us all to respond. I want you to imagine this is your father speaking to you. This is God. Come now. Let us settle the matter. This isn't harsh words. This is a father who is pursuing his children. And although his children don't want to face up to it, he's saying, my child, let us settle this matter. And he says to us, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. And though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Because Jesus Christ has carried every sin of mine and every sin of yours on the cross. And there is forgiveness available. No condemnation is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. This is wonderful story of the gospel. And it is true today. The gospel was designed for subjects and things just like this. This is where we see the gospel at its brilliant best. And Paul's going to lead us in a song of worship now. And it's going to remind us of this wonderful truth. And I just want to encourage you, whatever your situation, whatever your circumstance, sing it out with the best of who you are. Glorify, worship Jesus, and allow the Holy Spirit to come and minister to your heart and to your soul.